We were discussing about removing the filthy garments that the complete tzaddik does. Right? That the idea of the complete tzaddik is that their love for Hashem is going to be complete, and as a result of that, what happens to their animal soul? The evil is transformed. How does that transformation work? It's actually two steps. First, divesting of the filthy garments, which means coming to despise all the pleasures of this world. Okay? And then seeking pleasure only in the service of God. So, I remember the, the idea here is that the essence of the animal soul is, this, is, the, is the desire for what? What's the essence of No. No. What? What is the essence of the godly soul? Godly soul? Sorry, the animal soul, sorry. Not survival. Enjoyment. Enjoyment. If survival without anything to enjoy in life, the animal soul will just give up. It's not interested in that. Right. How do you make it give up? That's not a good thing. No, that, that's, that, that's a bad... No, you don't want to do that. That's very bad. And the... But the animal... That essence is wearing clothing. The clothing is the mode, the way in which the animal soul enjoys life. Right? And unlike physical clothing that you take off and put on without having to change you, it's more like the shape of um, Play-Doh or plastic, right? Where it's been molded that way. And so in order to divest it of its garment, you have to revert it back to its original raw form. Now, um, and, that, and, and the thing that we ended off with was what you derive pleasure in, that is really who you are as a person. Now, we also have a godly soul, but as a person, as a human being, what kind of person are you? What is the metric you use? What you enjoy and what you do not enjoy. So if you would like to become a better person, what would that mean? Enjoy better things. That's right. Okay. Now, There is a mitzvah in the Torah called the mitzvah of the para aduma, the mitzvah of the red cow. Everyone says heifer because it sounds nice. What? It's called the red heifer. You know what a heifer is? What is a heifer? A cow. That's right. Just a fancy word for cow. <laughs> but when I say mitzvah of the red cow. <laughs> it's a heifer, not a cow. <laughs> yeah, it's like there's a mitzvah to blow the ram's horn. It doesn't sound as great as saying a mitzvah to blow the shofar, right? So the mitzvah of the red cow, the red heifer. And uh, the way this is done is that you take the cow, and um, there's a lot of steps to this, but the main two parts are there's the burning of the cow, and you have to burn it until what? Ashes. So it's ash. So how much of the cow is left? None. None of the cow is left. Ashes. How much is left? All of it. All of it. That's right. In other words, the raw physical material of which the cow is made, it remains, but the form of the cow is? A lot of it's in the air now. I know, but we're not going to worry too much about chemistry. <laughs> can, I, can, I, can, I, can I just avoid the issue of chemistry instead of getting very complicated and metaphysical? Okay. So, the ash is the cow, right? But missing the form of the cow, right? Just the stuff the cow is made of. Okay, and then what do you do with those ashes? Anyone know? 
right? You put them in a vessel with living water. And no water could be alive, but it's called living water. Maim chayim. These are the steps of transforming the animal soul. Step number one is what do you have to do to the animal soul? Burn it. And burning the animal soul, what are you getting rid of? The essence of the soul or the form of the soul? The form, right? The ashes, the actual stuff it's made of remains. So the underlying essence, the ash, is the, the ash would correspond to the desire for pleasure itself. The yearning to experience positive experiences. That is the ash. That is the raw material. And um, what are you burning? The form of the cow, which is the deriving pleasure from things that are other than God. Then once you have the ash, that ash is then mixed with living water. What's the living water? The living water is a sense of, what do you think it's a sense of? God. It's a sense of God. And so what happens if the animal soul no longer derives pleasure in anything other than God and then is exposed to what it's like to be close to God? Now, what does the animal soul develop a, 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 a distinct taste for? God. God. And at that point, the animal soul has been transformed into something God. godly. It's good. Is, what does it mean to, to, dis, to destroy its form but to... In other words, does the animal soul stop desiring pleasure in this process that we're going to describe? Yeah. No. What, what gets destroyed the sense that this thing that used to give me pleasure no longer gives me pleasure. And whence all of the ungodly ways of experiencing pleasure no longer give the animal soul pleasure, then what could happen? Then it can enjoy God. Then it can experience pleasure being close to God. We didn't, but we didn't say how. How it's destroyed, we didn't say. We're just we asserting okay. that. So we'll get to the how. Okay. okay? Now, what I wanted to do... Um, is talk about why the godly soul needs to be doing this. Um, there is a, a very important philosophical question okay, that you need to answer okay, before we go forward, which is who created God? No one created God? God created God. wasn't created. Okay, so we have three answers. Let's now differentiate them. Answer number one is no one created God. Answer number two is God created himself. And answer number three is God wasn't created. Of the three, which is the correct answer? God was never created. God was never created. Okay. Why is that the correct answer? Because if you say God is created, then you also assume God can be destroyed? No, because it's just false. God wasn't created. It's the correct answer because the facts of the matter are there is something that it is to be created. Created means you come into being, right? As a result of some, something happens and you come into being. Did God come into being? No. So he wasn't created, okay. Now, if you say no one created God, though, you haven't answered the question correctly. Why not? Because you're assuming that God is a creation. You're still, you're, you're, it's just like God just came into being unexplicably. But that's not correct. God just poof into being somehow with no cause. Like, which one is right? There was always God. I know God is beyond time. Let's ignore that. There was always God, or one day, poof, God showed up for no reason. Which one? There was always God. There was always God, right? So saying no one created God is missing the point. The point is not there wasn't a, no one created him. It's that he wasn't created. But now let's talk about the most ridiculous of the answers, which is God created himself. <laughs> because that's just not factually wrong. That's silly. Why is that silly? What does it mean to be created? 
What does it mean to be created? I just said what it means to be created. Come into you came into being. So prior to your own creation, were you there? Yeah. Okay. What does it mean to create something? Good. That means prior to creating something, the creator was there or not there? If you create something, but prior to the thing you brought into being, are you there? Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So do you realize the contradiction in terms of saying that anything creates itself? Yes. Because then you're saying is the thing existed before it existed. That makes no sense. It's not wrong in the sense of factually incorrect description of God. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. Nothing creates itself by definition. To be created means you come into existence at a certain point. To create something means you're the cause of something else coming into existence. The creator exists before the point of creation. The creation only exists after the creation, or at the result of that creation, right? This is a fancy way of getting at the idea that the cause has to precede the effect. So now, we can generalize this. Can you teach yourself? Think about it very, very carefully before you answer the question. No, because to teach means you are imparting Right? To be taught means you're gaining the knowledge that you didn't have from the one imparting it, right? So if you're teaching yourself, that means you're doing what? You're giving yourself knowledge. But if you're giving yourself the knowledge you didn't have, you already had the knowledge, right? So can you teach yourself? No. Everyone's happy with that? Mm-hmm. Okay. So you never taught yourself anything? Ever? You can learn from you can yeah. What? You can learn from other stuff. It's already there. No, you can actually teach yourself. (laughs) Because I think we're all aware that we are multifaceted. Can there be one aspect of ourself which, so to speak, knows another aspect which doesn't yet know? Yeah, like your brain can know music theory, but your fingers can't actually play it. So I'm not going to go into this because it's not the subject, but I, I just want you to understand the notion that... If you are changing yourself, the part of you that's doing the changing is not the part of that is being changed in any kind of change, right? That make sense? So if, now we are very autonomous beings. We change ourselves all the time. We learn, we grow, we develop. But what does that mean? That one part of ourself is acting on another part of ourself, right? So you can teach yourself. Just it's one part of the self is teaching another part of the self. This can become very profound. Oh, so if we start speaking about God that has multiple parts, then sure, but um, we're Judaism, and um, does God God have different parts? No. So, maybe a Catholic can believe that God creates himself, (laughs) but not a Jew. And enough said on that subject. Enough said on that subject. Okay, so you could say that God creates different channels of expression, but not, those are not him, right? And uh, the questions and answers, we discussed that, right? The spirits, all that stuff, but like none of that is him, okay? Um, this is like a very important basic rule of Jewish theology. God does not have parts. So God, God cannot be created. God doesn't create himself. God doesn't learn. God doesn't teach himself. God doesn't change himself. By the way, we have a verse for that. Ani Hashem Leishani. See, I am God. I have not changed. To be God is to not change. To change means that you are not. Good? Okay. Now, why am I bringing this up? 
Can the animal soul get rid of its own garments? Right? The animal soul is that the being within us that seeks to experience pleasure. And the garments are the way it feels pleasure. Can it get rid of its own garments? What? So you can change your actions. Not any actions. Can I change? I enjoy certain things. Can, can my animal soul change so I no longer enjoy that thing? I no longer have pleasure from that thing. Yeah, yes, of course it can. So how come here in the Tanya it says that the godly soul is doing it? Wait, it could change itself? Sure. Because the godly soul is teaching the animal soul. No, 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 no. So what I want to do is before we go forward, because we understand what Tanya is saying. What's a change that you could make? And remember, this change, so let, let's use the example, right? Let's say you enjoy jokes at other people's expenses. Not the only thing in life you do, but you enjoy it. And you now want to make a change. You don't want to enjoy those things, right? How would you make that change? By not doing it. No, that does not change the fact that you enjoy it. It, it re- unfortunately doesn't. It would be really nice if it did, but it doesn't. But it's a desire to like laugh at someone else's expense. Somehow become you more could, sensitive to others. You, yeah, you said, but you don't want to laugh at them. Okay, what I You can work on. Yeah, you can, like, what, what you do is like this. What you do is like this. You become really. You what you do is like this, right? The the, the animal soul really wants to experience pleasure. The opposite of that is it doesn't like experiencing. Okay, so what if you work on empathizing with another person so that when. The other person is being made fun of. It's painful for you. So what does that do? Now, you don't want... Don't want to be in that pain. And therefore, because you don't want to be in that pain, you no longer enjoy it. But now, do you notice what you're doing? You're just using the fact that one pleasure... Overriding the other pleasure, right? It works. It does work. Right? This is how people often mature. Okay? But the problem is this is going to have a limit which is you're gonna have to, which means the animal soul can use which pleasure to override other pleasures? It can use its highest pleasure, the pleasure that's kind of the deepest thing. Right, in other words, let's, in other words like this. I can use the fact that I, I experience pleasure in connectivity to other people, right? When we're connected, when we're, when we're, when, we're, when we're experiencing things together, that can feel very good, right? And in such of that, I just grow in my empathy, how I, that I experience other people's experiences along with them. And that, that causes me to maybe no longer enjoy pain inflicted on other people, even for comedic effect. But this is gonna have a limit. What's the limit? Is that I have to start with something I already enjoy. That's right. So can I get rid of the totality of what I enjoy this way? I can find the thing that I enjoy most deeply and use that, right? Because remember this idea that I said that the cause has perceived effect? I can use something that is much more fundamental and use that to change something that is on a lower level of myself. So what would you say, what is the most fundamental thing that a human being enjoys as a human being? Connection to others. What? Connection to others. It's pretty alive. deep. Being alive, you mean like the fact that their heart hasn't stopped? No. That can actually be quite painful if you're missing any meaning in that. But I think I gave it away. Purpose. Meaning. 
Yeah, there's something, the most, the most profound experiences of pleasure are associated with things that we have a deep sense of meaning. That, now, does that mean like, they, like it's, that, that's it, that's all there is? There's plenty of other, and you can enjoy food, you can enjoy humor, you can enjoy aesthetics, you can enjoy a lot of things, right? And I would, not everybody enjoys meaning so deeply, it's a, but as you go deeper and deeper, the thing that, the, the, the thing that has the most powerful and deepest effect on feeling good is when there's an element of meaning. And the deeper the element of meaning you experience, the more it feels really good, okay? And you can see when something goes against your sense that this is meaningful, what happens? You don't enjoy it. You don't enjoy it anymore. Make sense? Okay. Um, is meaning God? No. What is meaning? Let's think about it. what is meaning really. Something that's like accomplishing that kind of justifies your existence, but like meaning is something that makes me true. At least it feels like it makes me truly important. Meaning is about affirming the significance of who. That's right. It's, it's weird to think about this, right? But a person who's, and we spoke about this when we spoke about the rational soul, but, but a person is like on a mission to save the world, right? The world is giving them a lot of significance. Which means what is the thing we take the deepest pleasure in as people? And the way to experience that pleasure in, in, in the most profound and sustainable way is not through food, or not even through aesthetics, and not through um, you know, other things like that, those, those have an effect, but if we can manage to find something that, that gives significance to my very being, well then that's, that feels really good. So God is pretty valid. That's right, but the thing is then, what are you actually driving pleasure in? God, or your, the significance of your own big self? Are you? And so now, this is the point that I'm trying to get to. Can you use your animal soul to divest yourself of all human pleasures, all non-godly pleasures? Mm-hmm. No, you can get your animal soul, and you can, and people do this. You can get your animal soul to be divested of more base, crass kinds of pleasures. Like, you could, you, no godly soul involved. You could get to a point, for a lot of work, where you no longer have any cruelty. Why? I don't know. Because it's right. Because because I, I I have so much pleasure from my connectivity to other people, from the empathic experience of having a joint sense of reality. That someone else's pain is painful to me, and so the old notion of, of, of deriving pleasure from someone else's misfortune just doesn't doesn't resonate anymore. I divest myself of that. Right? That's called being a decent person. We grow in that respect. Some people really go very far in that. But it's still deriving pleasure ultimately in my own being. Not deriving pleasure from God. So the point that I'm trying to make here is there is a limit to what the godly soul can change, so what the animal soul can change about itself. But the fundamental thing that the animal soul derives pleasure in itself and its experience of its own being, no matter working on that is going to ever change. So 
if we're going to if the animal souls strive for, drive for pleasure is going to be divested of anything other than God who's going to have to do the divesting who's going to have to be getting rid of the other forms the godly soul going back to you can't teach yourself you can't create yourself what does that mean Right, the thing that the thing that you are can't you can't change that. Something else has to change that. Okay, let's use another example. Okay, can a person who doesn't enjoy being disciplined develop a taste and appreciation for being disciplined? Yeah. Yes. How? Okay, but how do you do that? Learning about the importance of it and how it benefits you. And not just learning it abstractly, but actually experiencing that, either through contemplation or actually someone doing that to you, right? How do you divest yourself of the pleasure you get from feeling that you're doing well in life? Do do <laughs> you see the problem? Like, 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 I don't enjoy being disciplined. How do I develop being disciplined? Like, like that you can go, but right, but, but now I go to something like fundamental, like, like, like that doesn't make any sense. But doing well in life is not God, is it? So how does a human being, how does an animal soul derive pleasure in God? Well, the first step is something has to get, get it to no longer derive pleasure in anything else, including its, yeah, its personal meaning. The fact that it's doing well in life. All right, going back to the red heifer, what do we do to the cow? What's left of the cow in terms of its form? Nothing. Not changing a little bit. Not changing in this detail, that detail. The totality of it. So what, what happens to the animal soul in between the getting rid of the getting rid of the filthy garments and its transformation. What does it enjoy? It's like ash. It's like nothing, right? I mean, it's there's the capacity to enjoy to desire things for pleasure, but there's no sense of what would possibly give it pleasure. And then there's a step two. What's a step two? Is that the godly soul is exposed to what God is really like, a sense of godliness. And then what happens? The notion of deriving pleasure, the notion of, of, of wanting to feel good is transformed into something else entirely. And if you're gonna ask me what that's like, what am I gonna tell you? Yeah. I don't know, you know I don't know? No, it's not a tzaddik. Okay, so the godly soul divested of even its desire, of any, it like completely destroys it. But it didn't completely, it destroys it like burning something. When you burn something, did you completely destroy it? So it just leaves its like the fact that it wants something? The fact that it wants. The, the, yeah, the power of desire itself is all that's left. Nothing to do with wanting for its own being. Yeah, and then, it, just, like the, just like the Kohen after burning the cow pours water on the ash, afterwards the godly soul exposes that power of desire to a sense of what God is actually like. And at that point, the animal soul is a totally different kind of being. Okay. So now we explained what. Do we explain how that happens? No. How the godly soul does that? No. Okay. 
Um, so we're going to read in the text. We're going to start back on page 39, the last sentence, that is to say. That is to say, he utterly despises pleasures of this world, finding no enjoyment in human pleasures of merely gratifying physical appetites instead of the service of God, inasmuch as they are derived from and originate in the klipa and sitra achra. Klipa and sitra achra means things which are not godly. For whatever is of the klipa is hated by the perfectly righteous man with an absolute hatred by reason of his great love of God and of his holiness with profuse affection, delight, and superfluative devotion as it is stated above. So how does the tzaddik divest the animal soul of any ability to enjoy anything other than God? What is, what is, what is the tool that he is using? What does the text say? What? Hatred. There you go. Hatred. Because you know what's the best way to stop enjoying things? When you hate them. In fact, isn't that what we said? If like, how do you stop enjoying these jokes at other people's expense? When you hate the pain they cause people, right? When you hate something. You're not hating it. What? You're not hating it. What? You're not hating, not loving it. What makes a joke at someone else's expense funny? There's plenty of humor that's not at anyone's expense, right? There are three kinds of humor in life, okay? There's humor that's um, immodest. There's humor that's making, that's putting others down. And then there's stuff that's just funny, right? In other words, if you take anything and you speak about it in an immodest way and using the innuendo, people start laughing. But that's, but, but that's not like funny, funny. It's just... Right? And then there's stuff that's, and then there's stuff where you're like putting someone down in a clever way and everyone finds that humorous, right? But then there's stuff like funny that's just, it's funny. It's no one, you're not, there's nothing, there's nothing inappropriate about it. There's no one talking hard. It's just, it's actually funny. Observation. You don't have to make fun of an American person. What? No, you do something, ha- something funny happens. You do, I don't know, like, what's it mean when someone has like, a I will give you, I will, I will, uh, 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 uh. okay. The socks and the I don't know the socks and dryer in Seinfeld, but, but, okay. What does it mean when a guy has a good sense of humor? When a person, they see humor. So there's an interesting thing like what humor in itself is, right? There's an interesting thing what humor in itself is. Um, Hasidus says that real humor has to do with the, 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 the breakdown of logic. This is, this is, I don't want to turn the whole class on this, but like, for instance, uh, one of the things that makes humor work is that going forward, the setup means one thing. But when you get to the punchline, retrospectively, the setup means something else entirely. And the absolute sudden shift that your mind makes of that being, on the one hand, it's perfectly consistent, but it's entirely inconsistent simultaneously, cracks the guards we have against the inner joy of life and allows it to just come out. That's like true humor. That's like really funny. And then there's like making fun of people. And that's something else entirely. There's a... <laughs> life is wonderful. So how come we're not like experiencing wonderlessness all the time? We have a lot of layers built up. When someone makes, when, when something really, when, 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 when someone makes a really good joke, 
the, it's kind of like you imagine you're in a dark room and someone like moves the shade and all of a sudden the, the wind, light comes through and all of a sudden you can see for a brief moment. So like really, so, so, so that's... What? What? Yeah, so people have a sense of humor are able to see, are able to see like, they're able to see the, 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 the this is using the word in the definition, so I'm being more poetic than explaining. They can see the comedic and the tragic. They can see the paradoxical and the logical, and like they point that out, and it's very funny, and it cracks something open in your consciousness, and something good comes out. And that's actually why it's a very important analogy in Hasidus and understanding that what we're doing is, in some sense, a big divine joke. And I don't mean the sense it's unimportant. What I mean the sense is it breaks through the boundaries of what normally should be able to be revealed. Anyway. All that being said, a lot of times we're not doing that. A lot of times what we're doing is we're simply enjoying a sense of superiority over someone else, right? Or using innuendo and feeling self-conscious about it. It's a totally religious of things. Anyway, if you feel the pain that the other person experiences, or for that matter, even they don't experience it because they're too desensitized, but you feel, you, you feel the, the indignity being imposed on them, it stops being funny. It stops being enjoyable. Right? Why? Because it's repulsive. When you get a sense of how something is disgusting, you are not able to enjoy it. Those are just... Make sense? Can I give you like a really extreme, but just slightly disturbing example? Okay. The Talmud tells us that one of the ways a person can, and this is not a practical thing that everyone should do, but one of the ways that a, a person can really um, kill their desire to indulge in food, and I'm not recommending this without like proper, because you could, you could take this to an extreme, and then you like lose your appetite completely, and that's not healthy, um, is you simply like, develop a very clear sense of what eating actually is and digesting and what it says about the human condition and everything wrapped up in that right because eating the bathroom decomposing corpses right saliva all of that that's, that's a package deal it's not like you get right we are we, we, we're blissfully ignorant of everything on the taste and texture of the food as we're eating it right but what if you're not what if you're like very cognizant of all of that it's disgusting and that removes any sort of enjoyment from the experience of eating which could be taken to the extreme and actually cause a person to develop some very serious eating disorders which i'm not recommending to do but the talmud does say if a person has a problem of like you know their gluttonous Maybe from time to time contemplating that could be a positive thing. Finding something disdainful, despicable, hateful, disgusting kills the pleasure. That's how, do, how, does the godly, how does the godly soul get the animal soul to divest? Is that it gives the person a strong sense of loathing to all of the things that the animal soul enjoys. And the loathing is so deep that the animal soul can no longer enjoy those things. Good. All right. All right. Okay. Why does the how is why does the godly soul? Okay. Now. Or don't. 
We're going to read one more sentence, then we're going to go back. For they are antithetical one to the other. What does they are antithetical one to the other mean? Opposite. What are opposites? What are opposites? Hate and love, right? You ever heard the expression that the opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy? Yes. Yes. Do you know Chassidus has a hard time with that one? Can I tell you a story when I was younger? Okay. It's a personal story. When I was younger, and I don't remember the exact age because this kind of goes on all blurs together, but let's say around seven-ish, plus minus, um, I was very disturbed by this idea that up and down are opposites. This really bothered me. They no sense to me. It would bother me. I don't know. In my memory, it's like weeks, but it could have been just an afternoon, right? Because when you're, as, as you age, your sense of time warps. So who knows how long it goes, but it really bothered me. Why? Well, because when you're going up, you're moving. When you're going down, you're moving. So they're both moving. Like the opposite of up is staying still, because and when you're staying still, you're not moving. And this really bothered me. And at some point, I don't know, again, it could have been the same afternoon, it could have been weeks later, I don't remember exactly. I, I, I realized the solution to this problem, which was bothering me, which is, there's different notions of opposites. Why is up the opposite of down? Because of the direction. Because the direction, we're focusing on the direction of something. But then if I talk about the substance of what up and down is, it's just the notion of motion and it's immaterial, the direction, well then in that sense, the opposite is the absence of motion, which is staying still. Yeah. <laughs> I had other problems in life, don't worry. But I <laughs> so, and, and, and this, what I realized is that like, you know, there's, there's different notions of the word opposite, and when you mix them around, it creates a lot of confusion. So what is the opposite of love? Well, what do you mean? Do you mean love as emotion as an emotional experience so then the absence of any emotional experience is apathy but you know what in that sense the opposite of hate is apathy, apathy. the opposite of joy is apathy. the opposite of mourning is apathy. in that sense you're ignoring the particular direction the flavor of the emotion you're just you're just focusing on the fact that it's an emotional experience at all but now what do I want to focus on of love as love per se Love as a unique kind of an emotional experience. Well, now I need to, within the realm of emotional experience, what is an emotional experience which is the opposite, which moves you in the opposite direction? Hate, disdain, disgust. They're all variations on that theme. Okay, now what is the difference between these two kinds of opposites? There's a practical difference between these two kinds of opposites. If I am going up, then from an entirely different point of view, I am also. But if I'm not moving, no, yes. No, you going down. No what? matter from which side you look at, the person's going. No, if you're standing. If you're standing on top, they're still going up. If you stand on your head, you You just have to change your point of reference. For instance, um, if we were to just zoom out and look at the earth from very far away, right? And we were to watch you, um, pick up a pen from the ground, just pick it up, right? And then we were to watch someone in Australia picking up a pen, those pens would be going in which directions? The same direction or opposite directions? But to each of them, they're picking the pen up because their point of reference is different, right? Okay. Now, 
setting aside relativity, for those of you who know about relativity, we're just gonna talk like everyday normal experience. If you're not moving though, you're just not moving, right? And if you're moving, you're moving. In everyday experience, that seems to be independent of point of reference. Either you're moving or you're not. Okay, what? And there are other things like this. For instance, like this. If you are making money, what does it mean someone else is doing? They're losing money. After all, how did the money enter your pocket? By leaving. That's the, the interesting mystery of economics is how do people, and how do we, ha- how do we get richer as a society, right? Because I know that I get richer because I have your, the money you used to have, right? How do we get richer collectively? Right? You, can go back, you can go back and read your marks if you want, but whatever. <laughs> he was onto something there. So that, 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 that's an interesting thing, right? Not, by the way, not all societies are capable of becoming richer. Not all societies are capable of becoming richer. It depends on how things are arranged. But if I'm, as an individual, making money, someone else is losing money. By the way, this is like important just because society, society and individual aren't the same here. Um, if you go greater and greater into debt overall, what does that mean you need to do? You make, take on more and more and more debt, you're gonna need to make more and more money. At some point, does that become like obviously untenable? Why? If you're an individual. Now, what if you're a society? It's not the same. Okay, so this notion, some things work in the sense that, that they have this direction, so what's, you know, what's gaining for one is automatically losing for the other. Okay? If you're going up, if you're, if you're going up, if you were to look at it up from the reverse, you're going down. If I'm getting closer to something, it means I'm just getting farther away from understand? Right? There's those kinds of opposites. And then there's opposites where it doesn't work like that. Okay? There's opposites where you just have or you don't have. Okay? Having more doesn't, doesn't you know, it's like you can have more light, you can have less light. Does having more light mean you have less of something else? Less darkness. But what's darkness? Absence just absence of light. It's not a thing in and of itself, right? There's opposites where the idea has to do with direction. So if you're going in one way, from the opposite point of view, it's just reversed. Like this is, little kids get mixed up with this. Where's, where's right? I still get confused. Whatever it is in relation to whatever. So little kids will often have, the, the, they'll often have this experience that the teacher has a different right than everyone else in class. Mm-hmm. Why? Because right and left are oriented towards what you consider to be your front, right? So if you're facing the class, your right is on the other side than everyone else's right. So how are love and hate directional? So now, what does love mean? What do you mean you love something? You feel like you want to what? What is hate? And the other one is if you have it, you don't want it. Yeah, you have it or you don't have it, right. So if I, now here's the, here's the thing. What that means is, the, the, let's use a physical example. The more money I'm making, the less money 
someone else it happens, right? Just simple as interaction, right? The faster I'm running towards my destination, the quicker I am getting away from the origin point, right? In other words, they're correlated. By the way, the expression in Hebrew, zelhu umazel, which is translated as antithetical, doesn't just mean they're antithetical. It means that they correspond to each other. And what does that mean? The more I love, the more I hate. Think about it. Give me an example of a, of a medium love. Something you love, medium, not like the most intense, powerful love, but not like, you know, chocolate chip cookies. Like a medium level love. Donuts. Food is the same. All food is like a low level kind of thing. You get sick of it very easily. Medium level love. Something you... Notebooks. Notebooks? You love notebooks? Medium. Really? Like, not really. A good conversation. A good conversation. Oh. A notebook is like a tool to something else. Like how much of like, you don't really, I mean, maybe I don't want to like impose on you. Most people don't have deep emotional relationships. They feel like maybe you're a collector of notebooks. I don't know. I mean, but no, like, like meaningful conversations. Yeah. How much do you hate getting interrupted by unrelated points? I think that pretty much correlates to how much you love good conversation, doesn't it? Because if you love something, you hate the opposite of it. Whatever is inconsistent and goes against that is not in line with that, you have a corresponding hatred. Well, you know the most dangerous creature in existence? Is a, is a mother, is a mother who's discovered that someone is hurting their child. Of any species for that matter. Do you know why? The love is so gross. And therefore, what, what is the feeling towards whatever is threatening their child? What? Tons of hate. <laughs> tons of hate. Tons and tons and tons of hate. Venomous, destructive, violent hate. Really? Yeah. So, one second, if you Here's a question. How do I measure how much I love my children? My wife, my students. For interesting, myself. Right? We speak about this in modern People don't love themselves enough, right? Who would be an example of someone who doesn't love themselves enough? Someone who endangers themselves, right? In a, in, a, in a kind of callous, flippant way, right? Like somebody who like, say, makes a lot of poor choices. With, like, and they're, not, they're not incapable of recognizing. They're just like, they don't care. Like, you know, they'll, they'll, they, they're, they're, they endanger their mes- mental, physical health just without any real, right? there, there, there's not enough of a, of a real investment and a value and a want to be in touch with the good parts of yourself. And so it's like, yeah, they treat themselves like garbage. Not a good thing, right? How much do you love Hashem? How much do you hate the opposite of Hashem? That's right. So now, Tzaddik, as we mentioned yesterday, loves only 
that means that the tzaddik has a sense that Hashem is the only thing that is important, important the only thing that's real. So how does the tzaddik feel about anything? How does that, what does that love do to a sense of anything else purporting to be important or meaningful? That's right. So what is it that actually burns up the, you know, using the metaphor again of the red heifer? The, the animal souls different modes, different ways of experiencing pleasure. Is it the love or the hatred of the, that's implicit in the love? Yeah. They love Hashem so much that carries with it a hatred of anything ungodly and now they can't enjoy anything ungodly. Yeah. I have a friend of mine who's a therapist who, who, who about she's a therapist, and he says people people don't learn Tanya, but if you learn Tanya, you think it through. The conclusion the author doesn't say it because it would be like harsh to say it, but why is a person a Russia? Not because they on some level they hate Hashem. And some level there's resentment towards Hashem. On some level there's you know, hate problem with the English word hate is that it is much more intense than the sorry than the corresponding Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is sina, okay? And Hebrew just has a smaller vocabulary, so we'll use the word ava for love. You can mean, you know, we use it for all sorts of things, a whole range of things. What they all have in common is that I feel attracted, I feel drawn, right? And hatred, all the sense of? Rings. Yeah, right? But like, it, it, you know, a person might say like, I hate pizza, or I hate, I don't hate pizza. I hate mushrooms, though. Right? And, 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 and we'll, like, ignore that, but if I were to then use the word hate in some other more interpersonal context, like, no, you don't hate. Like, like, like you say, I dislike, right? Because we're uncomfortable with the intensity implied by the word, but ignoring the intensity, the, the valence, like, like, what is it? It means, like, yeah, like, ugh, stay away. Like, no, you don't want that. How intense, how not intense is beside the point. Well, so we do that with Michelle. What? comes along Hashem one day, this is already not said, comes along Hashem one day and says, I would like to be part of your life. And we're like, can I have some space, please? Some space. It's like, I'll meet you on Shabbos, okay? You're a little, it's a little suffocating, God. No, it doesn't resonate. Yeah? The tzaddik does not have that experience. Oh God, you're suffocating me. Right? Yeah. It's, uh... Tanya, there, there was, there was, the, the, when the Tanya was published, the story goes. So in Russia, everything had to undergo, uh, undergo uh, a review by the censor. Um, and the censor would sometimes make changes in different, you know. So friends, every time it mentions non-Jews in most, uh, most texts that were printed, um, when they had censorship, they, 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 the, the wording is changed so that it's plausibly not actually referring to non-Jews writ large, it's talking about like the Canaanites or the ancient um, idolaters or stuff. Um, so when, when the Tanya was, um, was published, so it, it had to go through the censor. The censor was a very learned Russian Gentile. I mean, he knew Hebrew, he knew Talmud, I mean, there, were, there were people like this, he was a scholar. 
and uh, he had to study the book and decide, is it published or not published, it's a part that's been taken out, and uh, it was a very big shock that he approved the publishing, uh, given the general bias against um, Jewish mystical literature in the Russian Empire. And uh, the story goes that he was asked why he allowed it to be published. And he said, it's a very important work. He's like, well, what, 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 what's so amazing about it? He says, he said, it, it took the fool out of the world. In other words, the notion that you can fool yourself about where you're really holding in life and who you really are, if you study tight, you just pay down to it doesn't let you do that. And he was so impressed by that message, he's like, I'm going to let this book through. That, that's the story. I don't know the source of the story, but I heard it from many people, so there's probably some truth to it. Right. What? Is it so, the reason he published it or the reason he didn't take out the word? No, the reason why he was impressed enough by the book to allow it to be published. He could have just said, I'm not publishing the book. I mean, it wasn't like, <laughs> it was, it's his judgment, like, do whatever he wants. Like, there's no board of appeals, right? He's not answerable to anybody. He's appointed by the Tsar's government and he makes the decision. And we're all familiar with what it's like to have an autocracy, but it really is a whole different thing. Um, anyway, so getting, getting back to this, it's the hatred that the, that the godly soul is able to manifest into this person for anything ungodly that causes the animal soul to no longer be able to enjoy all the non-godly things. Now, is the, animal, is the godly soul full of hate? Is it like a hateful, spiteful being? No, it's the hate that comes by reason of love. And is the, is the tzaddik working on hating more? Is that what he's trying to do? He's trying to develop a deeper, deeper hatred. No, go back to the example of the mother. You know, there's, there's a mother trying to work on a deeper, deeper hatred for someone who threatens her child? No. No, right? The, the mother's loving the child, right? And the degree of love will determine the hate as the situation warrants hate. By the way, th this dynamic plays out in many things in Chassidus, which means that you, you run into a problem, which is that you don't get everything to be all wonderful. Um, pain and pleasure, what kind of opposites are they? They're directional opposites, which means the more something gives you pleasure, the more the pain you'll have when it's taken away. So now you have a very difficult choice to make. Are you pro-pleasure or anti-pain? Because they lead to two very different places. If you're anti-pain, what should the solution be? That's right. If you're pro-pleasure, what, you what do you need to develop? Tolerance for pain. If you want to experience pleasure, you need to develop a tolerance for pain. What does pleasure come from? Any kind of pleasure. Having, I mean, having, you know, maybe, I'll use a different word because I think having implies too much possessiveness and not all kind of pleasure has that possessive quality. But let's say pleasure comes by connecting to something in some way, right? You can connect to an idea, you connect to the pizza, you connect to your friends, you connect to the deeper parts of yourself, right? But we derive pleasure we experience pleasure in connecting to something in some way. So now, what choice do you face in life? If you're anti-pain, then you have to be willing to let go of pleasure. Letting go of pleasure means letting go of 
connection. And if you're pro-connection, not even for the pleasure in it, you're just pro-connection, right? Then you're making yourself vulnerable to a lot of pain. So you need to develop the ability, a tolerance to experience pain. In the words of King Solomon, Yosef Das, Yosef Mechayv, increase in connection and it involves an increase in pain. So, what are you looking for in spirituality? We're moving outside the text of the time just so we understand the dynamic. He's talking about this in a very profound level, but but this is something we can talk about in any level. What are we looking for in spirituality? What are we looking for in spirituality? What, is, what are we seeking out when we try to be more spiritual? I'm using the word spiritual intentionally. Like our godly soul or the... I'm asking as people. Connection. As people, well, well, actually, unfortunately, we're looking for two things. And we often don't realize that those are intentional. We're looking for connection and we're looking to escape pain. Life can be very harsh, right? Life can be very difficult. Life can be very draining. Use whatever word you like, right? And we seek out spirituality for what purpose? to free ourselves of that. We also seek out spirituality because we want to be more connected to something real. But that's like trying to have your cake and eat it too because if you're trying to avoid pain, what do you need to be letting go of? What? What are you, what are you confused about? I have said a lot of things, which are the last words. People speak, seek spirituality for two reasons. One, to escape the pains of life. Two, to connect to something real, important, meaningful, blah, blah, blah. They are. Because what happens the more strongly you're connected to something? The more pain you'll experience or the less pain you'll experience? That's right. It's worse, actually. It's far worse. It's far more difficult. What? Okay, I understood that. But I understood the sentences. I don't understand. I, I, what, are you just, what are you trying to say? I'm trying to say that, <laughs> that, that you, have to, you have to realize that sometimes we, we, we try to do two things that don't work together. And therefore we get stuck. If you're trying to get more into spirituality because that is supposed to help remove or ease whatever pains a person's experiencing in life, that is a very different kind of a spirituality. It's antithetical. It goes against the kind of spirituality where you're connecting to something. I don't get how that's true. So let's use, let's use, let's use an analogy. Let's say um, somebody is trying to avoid um, the pain of life. We fail at things, right? We don't succeed. Right? That doesn't feel very good. We don't like that. So they want to like open up a whole new avenue of their life where like, they, they can go beyond that, escape from that, and not have to feel that. Can developing a connection with God be that kind of a thing? Yeah. No. Let's think. Let's yeah. Let's think. Let's think. Let's think of the, Let's think of what connection to God is. God is infinite, and you are. You don't see any problems in that relationship. 
How? You work really, 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 really hard to connect to God. And then you discover, being that you're finite, in any real way have you progressed? Failure, failure is in principle built in. Now, this is, this is why, like, if you read about Jewish mystics, they're, they're not, like, in bliss at all. Because there's, there's the notion that, like, if you could take this without the mystical stuff, right? There was an article someone sent me years ago. Some woman wrote about why she's not having children. And the main thrust of the article is that children provide an element of cuteness in your life, which is true. Children are cute. And she's like, I can get enough cuteness with my nieces and nephews. Raising children is difficult, it's hard. And therefore, it's enough for her to have nieces and nephews. Is she wrong? No. I'm a parent. And ask any parent, like, like, like the Rebbe once said, like, there are things that are objectively painful and difficult. Right? One of them is, having, is raising children. Raising children is called, in our, by our sage, it's tsar, pain. Why is it painful? You're invested in another person. Do you have the free will to control them? Or only yourself? Yeah? Can you... Their pain, when, when, when the world is hurts them, can you make it stop? No. Like, can you give me a list of things that you're deeply emotionally connected to, you're invested in, and yet you're guaranteed not, not to get the result that you want in this area or in that area? And do you, there's the interesting question. Are you ever going get to get, get enough, oh, this is an enjoyable experience, this is, feels so good, that it warrants all of that pain? No, so it has to be that you value the connecting, you value the life of a child, you value being in that chain of bringing someone else into existence and being there for them much more than. Enjoy. Yeah. God forbid, don't you know this? My, my son had one of the kids in his class many years ago when he was in second grade who got brain cancer. And for like the last year and a half of this child's life, his parents were in the hospital. And they're just sitting in the hospital with their dying child. That is not pleasant. That is not enjoyable. Right? If, you're, if you want to avoid pain in life, what do you do at that point? And the people who do do this, what do you do? You get yourself to stop caring. Because it's very, very painful. In other words, caring, connecting, being engaged, it brings a tremendous amount of pleasure, brings all these things, but it also carries with the pain. And those are commensurate. Love and hate go together, pain and pleasure go together, and these are the consequences of having a connection. The stronger connection, the more intense the love, the more intense the pleasure, and correspondingly also the more intense the hatred and the pain. And, some, and, 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 and one of the things that the, 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 the mystics say is that what makes God infinite is not that he doesn't experience pain, but that his pain tolerance is how high? Infinite. At what point is it too painful for God that he backs and says, you know what, I can't take it anymore. Now, I'm done. Never. Never. Behold, and all of the pain of all of us, he is also pain, but he doesn't back out. But we, at some point, sometimes, the pain, we're like, you know what, this connection isn't worth it. Too much pain. And there's a whole other notion of like spirituality and stuff where, it, where it's really about trying to free yourself of that whole dynamic. 
a very different kind of a thing. And the, the, both motivations exist inside people. Um, and and one, one, of, one of the, I mean, later on the altar speaks about it, is that one of the things about, about a person, if they're going to really connect, is they have to be able to cry on one side and rejoice on the other side. To connect to what? To connect to anything. Yeah, and just think about a scientist. If a scientist really wants to know the cosmos, what are they going to have to face? Is, are you ever going to understand the entire universe? No matter how much you work in one lifetime, will you ever know it? Will you even know, will you even come close to knowing it in its entirety? Is that like tragic? That's just like a built-in tragedy, right? And so it's like, what's the point? <laughs> you devote your whole life to something that you make infinitesimal progress on, like why? What well, has to be that the connecting to that means much more to you than the, the, than, than the, 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 the pain of, of not progressing and not getting to where you wish you were. It's a very different thing. And so there's, an, there's this notion that, that Hasidah speaks about, that Kabbalah speaks about, and for that matter, even other Jewish philosophers thinkers, um, Rabbi Yosheva Soveitchik, the Yosheshevish University writes about that. The, mo- the moment you really invest in connecting to something, you are now going to experience a polarity, a dichotomy, an antithesis. You, you really care, you love, but that love comes along with hate. You really, it speaks to you, it resonates with you, you're now vulnerable to tremendous amount of disappointment and pain. And very often what we would like to do is we would like to have the cake and eat it too. I want the connection without the pain. I want the love without the vulnerability of being hurt. I want to be enthralled without being repulsed by other stuff. And it's just, that's not reality. That's not how God made things. And the tzaddik is a person who loves Hashem so much that the implied hatred comes along with it. And it has a very, very powerful effect on the animal soul. It prevents the animal soul from enjoying any of the things it used to enjoy. It, it, it kills it. It burns it away. And uh, that's a consequence not of, him tr- of, the, of the tzaddik trying to become a hateful, spiteful person, but because the tzaddik loves so much. Loves so much. And obviously, we're not, none of us are becoming tzaddikim tomorrow, but I think understanding the dynamic is very, very important. Who is the person that you will most likely hate the most in your life, statistically? Yes, what? Other than your spouse, other than yourself, your spouse. Why? And because of the complexity of people, we're not just simple beings, right? The slightest departure from your spouse as how you love them, right, becomes something that is can be extremely painful and you resent. Simple, concrete example, right? Your spouse rolls their eyes while you're talking. Why? Because you care about them. Some random person rolls your eyes while you're talking. <laughs> you move on and get lunch. It's like not a big deal. And you know what? A lot of people don't get very deep into relationships. Why? Because they don't want to feel hatred, pain, resentment, disgust. 
Because does it feel good to have these kinds of experiences? No. And you can develop a whole psychology or a whole mysticism around that. It's not Judaism, but you could. Make sense? Um, and it's a, it's, it's, it's a, the reason why I'm calling it a choice because it's a choice that a person has to constantly make. You don't make this choice once and then that's it. Relationships, marriages, parents, children, friends, they often fall apart because things become painful and hurtful and resentment. And you know what? Then a person makes a choice. Well, if this causes this kind of pain, resentment, and hurt, then I'm not into it. And then what happens to the relationship? It goes away. fades. I mean, if you're asking me, like, you know, how does a person have that? Like, how do you raise a person to have that in terms of, like, childhood development? Or are you asking me, like, now as an adult? Yeah. This goes into the, the notion of, like, courage has to be something you draw out of yourself. I think it's part of the rational song. It's part of self-knowledge and part of realizing that I do have a resilience. And, yeah. and that's... So when a person looks for spirituality to have a deep connection and to escape the pain of life, they're, they're looking for both of them at the same time? Will they ever succeed in either of them then? No, because relationships between pain and pain and healing pain. Right. Why, why is escaping pain... Because escaping pain means the things that cause you pain you have to be detached from. So are you, and that's a lack of connection. Like people do this all the time. Like I'll give you an example. Like little children will sometimes tell you they don't want things because they're afraid that you'll say no. So it's easier to convince themselves I don't want it and let go ahead of time, preempt. And then be told I can't have it when I wanted it. And you can become very stoic, you can become very accepting. Whatever happens, it's fine because I wasn't attached to it to begin with. And like, you can like go very deep into that. But then you're 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 not you're not attached to something. It's a <laughs> there's a reality to what goes inside of a person and how it works and. When, 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 you, when, when you get married, when you have children and close friends, there's a tremendous amount of vulnerability in them. A transcendent exposure, there's an implicit amount of, there's an implicit negative emotion and pain carried along with that. And whether you experience it or not, it's circumstantial, right? You know, it's, if it's all going well, you don't experience that, right? The love that the mother has for the infant is not experienced as hatred because nothing's happening to the child. But if someone's threatening that child, all that love is now experienced as venomous hatred. And so that, that, that's scary. Not everyone wants to experience that kind of stuff. So how do you know when the girl is not? What? How do you know when what? Or not? You want the honest answer? Outside of prophecy, you never know. You have to make a judgment call. Like, here's the thing. How do you know that, like physically, how do you know you're lifting the heaviest thing you could possibly lift? You can't lift something heavier. That's right. But how do you know that? You have to lift until you can no longer lift. If you stop lifting at any point, you never really know 
if you could have lifted more, do you? You have to lift and fail to know that was your limit. How do you know that you can't connect beyond this degree of pain, this degree of resentment, when you actually can't do it? But if you stop ahead of time to be safe, you don't know. Now, am I telling you that means you should never, no, it just means that like, that's part of, again, the person has to make a judgment call, to take kind of responsibility for lives in their own hands. There's a, there's, there's, a, there's a real thing here, like, how do you know? How do you know if you didn't try a little hard, it wouldn't have worked out? You don't know. You don't. You know if you tried everything you could. You tried and tried and tried, and then it, it didn't work out. Then you know. But short of that, you don't ever know. And so you have to decide. Do you want to risk further, or are you like, this is too much for me, I'm uncomfortable, I'm back out. I don't think anybody can stand aside and make a judgment or another person about that. That's not fair. But it's also true that there's no, there's no litmus test for that unless a prophet comes along and tells you. So is it possible that if, like, a, as a personality trait, you value connections very strongly, you'll also be hurt easier? Mm-hmm. That makes sense? So let's say, who's the person who experiences the most pain from other people in life? That's right. Someone who genuinely loves every person is going to experience a lot of pain. So, do you want to be that person who loves everybody or not? You don't understand, like, what, what, when we speak about fear of God, it's not like God's going to punish you. It's like the fear of, like, what you're doing. You're trying to connect to God. Like, that's a scary thing. There's a lot in that. Why? Are, you, are people afraid to get married? Why? Do they, because, like, maybe they're going to get punished for getting married? Or maybe getting married comes with a lot of heartache and pain and... And, 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 and they're not sure that they have the, the stamina, the wherewithal, the inner courage to deal with all of that, right? That's where the fear comes from, right? But that's with the relationship with another person. That's not like... Infinitely more so with Hashem. How? Like a, a relationship with a person is very different than a relationship with Hashem. You're right. A relationship with another person, you can limit. You put or, in a box. It's or, in a certain avenue, it's a certain area of life. There's no, there's no all-encompassing relationship with another person. There's with each other. Like the things that would hurt someone in a relationship is because the other person's not perfect. No, because the other person is different. Not not perfect, different. So she's also different. I think he's more different than a person than you are from another human being. Yeah, I'll give you a very practical example, right? You're a child. They're really bothered because someone took their candy. They come running home to their parent, their older brother. In this grand scheme of things as an adult, is, is losing your, having your candy taken away like a big deal? 
And the parent looks at the little child and says, I want, I want to show you something about life. I want to like, connect you in a deep way. I want to, I want to be honest with you about like, It's really not that important. And you will one day hopefully realize that. And I'm, and I'm not doing this to be mean. I'm doing this because this is true. And I want to share that truth with you. I'm not just like... Now how does a child feel? <laughs> okay, so you come to Hashem and you're like, like, I'm dying! And Hashem's like, you're a temporal being that comes and goes. I mean, you're not like eternal <laughs> existence. Like, now how do you feel? It's a temporal being. Like, really, like, like, you're crying to Hashem that you're going to die a few years, months, decades earlier or later, and he responds, temporality has no meaning to the eternal. Like, now, he's like, Hashem, don't tell me that. Just lie. Pretend that. that pretend. Right? Like, placate me. Yeah? The shame Hashem you call out to when, when God's result the person is dying is the same Hashem that you go to for comfort right after they're dead. That, that's, not, that's not incredibly intimidating. Why? Because you'll get what caused the, what, what, who has the power to keep a person alive? Who, who made it that the person didn't stay alive? Coming from a place of an infinite eternal truth. Oh, you're saying. And you're in a place of the pain of the here and now. And you're trying to get comfort from some, like, like, like that's, it happens, people do it, but that's like, that's daunting. That's, that's not, a, it's, yeah, I mean, it's like, if you, reduce, if you reduce Hashem to just like doing mitzvahs makes the world a better place. Well, I mean, okay, fine. I mean, unless I have a particular objection to a particular mitzvah, fine. But like that's like that's the level of like, you know, you know, the parent telling the four-year-old, you know, if you clean up your room, then we have a clean room and the kid like picking up the toys because it's a fun activity because you're going to sing a long song. Like, but that's not much of a deep connection, is it? Between the parent and the child? Yeah. To really face that you're in a relationship with an eternal being? That's, the eternal being is watching you? The eternal being is ascribing eternal significance to your actions? Should I, I, mean, should I, this is the, I mean, the reason I can say this so easily is because I don't feel it. I don't get it. If I really got it, I would be scary. It would be intimidating. It would be overwhelming. So do you want to connect to Hashem? Or you don't want to connect to Hashem. And, and person of bias, of course I want to connect to Hashem. You know, is either so simple they don't realize what they're saying or so, or so self-alienated they're not in touch with themselves. One of the two. But like, the tzaddikim, they would say, I do and I don't. I'm, I'm, I, I take one step forward and I recoil backwards. It's like, it's not a simple thing. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, there's oh this is called in Hasidus the idea of two lines. Every, nothing nothing is everything has the other side of it. You love, there's hate. There's pain, there's pleasure. There's connection, there's vulnerability. And so you have to pick how do you want to deal with that? Because you don't get you don't get to have your cake and eat it too. You can eat your cake, but then it won't be there anymore. Or you can preserve it, but you'll never get to eat it. You gotta pick which one you want. 
The Rebbe Rishab, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, had an older brother who decided he did not want to be the Rebbe. And he was asked about it. And he said, the difference between my brother and I is that my brother loves truth and I hate falsehood. If you hate falsehood, it's because you love truth. If you love truth, you're going to hate falsehood, right? But now you have a question of like, which one of those are you more sensitive to? Which one of those do you feel more? Because if you hate falsehood, what will you always find in everything? Some element of? Falsehood. And will you be able to tolerate anybody or anything? Mm. But if you love truth, no matter how distorted or dis- you know, corrupted something is, there's still some element of? Truth. So you'll seek to redeem everything. There's these kinds of choices in life. Wait, true or false? Is it a direction category? Not in a direction category? It's a direction category. Because truth, truth is, the, is whatever God places into something, whatever God sees in it. And falsehood is the distortion of that. The corruption of that. It's a topic for another time, but it is in the direction category. Oh, I put it in half. Anything to happen. All right, I will see you tomorrow. Questions and answers.